Peter, last time we spoke a, a few years ago, you were telling just a little bit about your story and your experience during the war, but you'll be sharing that with more people tomorrow night with a talk with the new institute. Yes, I believe. Why do you think it's important to continue to tell your story? I don't think it is. Why? <laughs> I think it's I think it's done as dash. It's been talked about for quite a long time now, and uh, the members of my unit think it's important. They've mm. gone off to Singapore to celebrate it. There's only seven of us left, and three of them have gone over there to commemorate. Why didn't you go? I don't want to go back to Singapore. No. I've just had enough. Singapore doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Has that feeling changed in the ensuing years from the the time you came home to Australia after the war? Yes, a, a while ago I would have liked to have gone back. I have been back a couple of times, uh, not to commemorate this, but to go back to Singapore. But uh, I've had enough. You've had enough? <laughs> yeah. In some ways I understand how I think you feel about the story now being an awfully long time ago, but I also think that there are many stories that my young boys should know about and understand as they grow up. Sure. I want them to know about what men like you experienced. I can understand your point of view. Yeah, and that's the reason why I'm talking about a night. When you try and explain Changi to people, how how can you make other people even vaguely understand what that was like? I don't think they'll have any concept of what Changi was like. Changi to them is a place of uh, misery and uh, torment and bad food and so on. That wasn't what Changi was like. It was like that up on the railway line. It was like that in the working parties. But in Changi itself, they had universities, they had libraries, they had discussions, they had swimming, they had all sorts of things you could do. I was up on the railway line for a year or so. When I came back, it was like coming home. Being sent up to the railway line as a doctor, what resources did you have at hand for you to help people? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> we had no medicines. We had knowledge. We had experience. And we could look after people. But as far as treatment was concerned, for a while they had some quinine. Then that ran out. That's for treatment of malaria. But I had nothing where I was for the treatment of dysentery. What could you do to help people with injuries and so Talk. on? i give you an example. I was out walking and a fellow was lying down on the ground in the mud. I said to him, what's the matter, mate? He said, I've had enough. My mates died and I've died and I'm, I've had enough. Well, I was able to talk to him, persuade him to come to the medical centre. And uh, he came home and they had a very successful life. It was the 15th of February 1942 when Singapore fell. Uh, Singapore was supposed to be a stronghold. Singapore wasn't going to fall during the war, was it? Singapore was vulnerable. So long as Singapore had air and navy, they were right. Once the Navy and the Air Force were gone, it was vulnerable. And that's what happened with the Japanese. They lost the Navy, repulse and so on, and they lost air superiority. So Singapore was vulnerable. My guest is Dr Peter Hendry here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle. Peter is speaking tomorrow evening uh, for the New Institute. This is at Newcastle City Hall in the Hunter Room and it starts at 7 o'clock. There is a $5 donation to uh, to get in. And for more information, newinstitute.org.au. Why did you want to become a doctor, Peter? I wanted to become a medical missionary, so I decided to do medicine first. My father was a Presbyterian minister, and I grew up in the environment of the church. I graduated medicine in 1938, and started at the Prince Henry Hospital as a young resident in 1939, and I joined the Army in June 40. Well, first of all, when I joined the Army, I went to Bathurst, and that's where I joined the 2nd 10th Field Ambulance. 
and we were there for 18 months before we went over to Singapore. We went straight to Singapore, there for about a few months, and then we were sent up country, uh, and I stayed there until the war broke out. Those 18 months at Bathurst, Peter, what was it like? Were you a bunch of young blokes who thought that eventually when you get sent, what, what were you expecting? I was expecting training, uh, and I expected to get away pretty soon. I thought I might be going to the Middle East. I had no idea I was going to go to Singapore. I expected to have six months and then to be overseas. My expectations were not fulfilled. What did you think your work would be like? Repairing wounded soldiers. But that you would have some resources and facilities to be able to do so. We were a field ambulance. We weren't resident medical officers. Hmm. In case you don't understand, the battalion has a doctor. Several battalions have a field ambulance. It's a brigade. And the field ambulance take the very sick that the local doctor can't fix up. And uh, if we can't fix that, we send them off to the AGH in General Hospital. And that was my position in the field ambulance. How old were you when you went to war? I was born in 15. You were. <laughs> I'm not too sure. I must have been around about 30, I think. <laughs> around about. The role of your, of your father and your upbringing with your dad as a, as a minister. He died when I was nine. Obviously, that was an influence, though. If you had wanted to be a medical missionary then the influence of your father was was oh, I there. The, I think after my father died, the family continued on going to church regularly, and I was a, went through Sunday school and fellowship, and I just thought I'd, uh, I'd like to do that. To be a medical missionary, what did you want to do? Where did you want to go? I wanted to do medicine first, so I'd become a doctor. And then I'd, go, I'd, be, I'd hope to be sent there by the church wherever they wanted me to go. Is there anywhere you'd have liked to have gone? <laughs> no, not really. It's a concept of being a medical missionary, not the place I wanted to go to. Was it something that was with you even when you were watching not really. men die? Not really. I think I, I grew out of the concept of wanting to be a medical missionary. I was, did medicine and I enjoyed being a doctor and I went away as a doctor, not, yeah. not, not a missionary doctor. Do you believe in God? <laughs> And we all... Some say they don't. Yeah. I believe in, I believe in Almighty. I believe in some overbearing force in nature. Some people call it nature, some people call it what they like. Many people, Peter, I think coming out of an experience like the railway, I assume many men would have lost their belief in God. And they would say, where was God? I think many more would have been strengthened in their belief. To have gone through what they did and came through, they would have to have something looking after them. And I yeah. think a lot of people would believe in God. When did you get home? September 42, 45. 40, September 45? Yes. How were you then, physically Good. And, and emotionally? Good. I was very lucky. I had uh, dysentery. I never had malaria. I had uh, some of the other things, but uh, I mm. was pretty fit. I kept myself fit. I was skinny. <laughs> 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 I'd lost a lot of weight. How long did it take you to go back to work in Australia? What did you do after you came home? I wanted to go back to work. The same job I had when I left, which was a pathologist at Prince Henry Hospital. And uh, I was home a couple of weeks before I was back in hospital. Just a couple of weeks? I felt it was important to rehabilitate myself by going back into my position. I couldn't sit around doing nothing. We talk a lot now about post-traumatic stress disorder which we didn't talk about then. And we know now that when a lot of our serving personnel come home from war zones, they're perhaps better looked after psychologically as well as physically yeah. than they were. A lot, of, a lot of the fellows that came back were mentally disturbed. Uh, 
for myself. I, uh, getting home and going back to work was uh, normal, back to normal life again. And previous things were all forgotten. So easy to forget for me. All forgotten or easy to put aside well, for you? Put the back of my mind. Not, I didn't sit back and recall what was happening. I very rarely thought about the prisoner war period. I got involved with present and not the past. What about friends of yours who weren't able to do that? Some of them had a very bad time. Left their wives and uh, not not many of them, as a matter of fact. I think it uh, wouldn't be more than half a dozen that I know that got in that situation. Mm. Most people coped. After the uh, as prisoners of war, we were left alone by the Japanese. So people got involved with all sorts of things themselves and get involved in readings and some had university training and scholarships and so on, all at the, in Changi. Mm. See, Changi had lots of people to prisoner of war. They had professors, they had engineers, they had all these people who were taken prisoner of war. And they got together and they formed these schools and University of the Changi. And most people got involved. If they didn't do that, they played cards. <laughs> <laughs> Dr Peter Hendry is my guest here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle. Peter, when, when were you first sent to the Burma Railway? What was your first experience of that like? Were you, were you sent early or had you heard stories about it before you were sent up there? I'm just trying to recall. When we became prisoner of war in Changi, the Japanese demanded work parties, first of all in Singapore itself. So I worked in uh, Singapore while the boys were loading go-downs for stuff to go into the ships to send back to Japan. After six months, they needed people up on the railway line to build the railway line. They sent parties of workers up, and I was sent up as a doctor to look after a party. So I was enjoying myself in town in Singapore when I had called, had to go back into town, was sent off up on the railway line. What did you see when you got there? What were your experiences of the railway line? That's a difficult question. We arrived at a place called Bangpong on the railway line. That was the beginning of it. We had to march from there up to where the work was being done, which is about 300 kilometres. And uh, we left most of our gear back in Bangpong, carried what we could, and we marched up. We walked up those 300 kilometres. I've forgotten how much we did, about 20 or 30 a day, I think, and then we'd rest overnight, sleep wherever we were and then move on again. We had no uh, no accommodation. So in those circumstances, it wouldn't take long for people to become sick? No. Oh. Hmm. How long did you continue to practice as a doctor, Peter? When did you actually retire? I graduated in 1939, and I was a doctor. I mean, when did I resign from medicine? When did you, when did you retire, yes? 85. 1985. And since then, what have you done? What other passions have you had? What other experiences have you had? I play golf, I swim, (laughs) I read a lot, and that's how I spend my time. I'm not not involved in any charity work or anything like that at all. You look like you're in pretty good nick to me. I'm I'm on in years now, and I'm still fit enough to play golf, I'm still fit enough to swim. And I enjoy reading, my eyesight's good. Hearing's shot. Hearing's not too bad. (laughs) How did you end up in Newcastle? I applied for a job as clinical pathologist at the Royal Newcastle Hospital. I was, a, I was doing clinical pathology at Prince Henry Hospital in Sydney when the advertisement came up and it sounded pretty good, so I came up for an interview and enjoyed the look of the place and they accepted me and I accepted them. So you went from one hospital by the beach to another hospital by the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Prince Henry Hospital was a great hospital. 
as you say, on the beach and swim. The great thing about Prince Henry Hospital was that the nurse's home was down on the waterfront. Yes. And there were always lots of lovely girls to dance with or to play with or swim with and so on. How do you feel now about your experiences? You laugh easily, you smile easily, you look like a man who's... I have no problems at all with my past. I look upon the time as a prisoner of war as a wonderful time to get to know people, get to understand people, uh, to experience difficulties in life. I have no regrets about my prisoner of war period. Is there a standout memory for you as a doctor, whether it was during the war or right up until 1985? I think my experience as a prisoner of war, and on the, first of all, on the railway line before we became prisoners, I think that experience was, I enjoyed more than anything. My first introduction to real difficulties in life and uh, managing other people's problems, that was a standout for me. Mm. That's when I matured. Managing other people's problems, that's it's an interesting expression because as we were talking about earlier, many people didn't cope, many people came home damaged, as, yeah. you, as you said. Do you think that is a part of the privilege of being a doctor? being able to oh, I'm sure. help others when they're not managing. I'm sure. Having something to do all the time and be busy all the time was great. I think it was important. And I think education that I'd had before I became a prisoner of war was important too. In what way? I was mature mentally. I don't know if you understand, but a lot of the kids that joined the army, 16, 17, 18 year olds, were really immature. They had no experience in life at all. I had lots of experience in life before I joined the army. I think that made a difference. How could you try and translate your knowledge and experience to help a young soldier who was sick, frightened, po- quite possibly dying? Yeah. That's a good question, but I think a lot of it's in, in your own makeup, your own mental attitude towards life. Helped by experience, I was able to talk to these people. Yeah. A lot of them were immature boys, you know, 16, 17-year-olds, really. Mm. Had no experience in life at all. Homesick. Uh, depressed, you know, the old expression, I'll never get off the island. <laughs> and uh, I think we're able to help these people. Peter, when you consider war and conflict now, because it's still happening in different parts of the world, how do you perceive it? I, do, you, uh, do you just I think. I read the news in the paper, and it becomes news and it goes in one ear and out the other night. Do you think we're all nuts? It's all crazy that, <laughs> that we're still killing each other? I think it's part of human nature to fight, argue. It happens in the home, it happens at school, it happens all the way through life. We get mature, you get big guns and all sorts of things, you can have much more fun. I think it's part of life. (laughs) You are undoubtedly a resilient man. What do you credit with your resilience? My upbringing, family life. I had a very happy family life. I had a very caring mother and sisters, and I was given all the opportunities in life. I was sent to schools, good schools and so on. And I think that was what behind me. I had all the background I needed to survive. Are you happy? Happy now? Very. I'm 90, what, 96 or something. <laughs> and I still, <laughs> still play golf twice a week and I read and I swim. Yes, I'm very happy. 96 or something. <laughs> <laughs> Near enough is good enough, I guess, when you get to 96. <laughs> Ah, dear. Peter, it's always a delight to speak with you. Thank you very much for your time once again. It's been a pleasure, Carol. You're going to take my little boys out and teach them how to play golf? No. (laughs) (laughs) I've got enough to do.